Amen. And it is muggy. It's not just you. Good morning. So in just a minute, you're going to get to experience what I have experienced for the last week, which is a little bit of disorientation. So we've kind of had this series through Luke, which, which we've been walking through is the term that we use. Sometimes I feel like we sort of staggered our way through. So the, the beauty is I preached a lot of places where I might know the Sunday before, or maybe on Monday, what I would need to preach that next week because I got asked into the pulpit late. The beauty here is that we're oftentimes scheduled a month, six weeks, two months in advance. So a couple months ago, I said, yeah, Luke 19, 28, 48, that sounds great. That's Palm Sunday. And about a week ago, I'm like, wait a minute, Easter's here and I haven't preached yet. So some things either I'm really off, so I'm checking the calendar again going, have I misread what I'm supposed to preach? That's kind of bad because I've been spending a lot of time here trying to figure out where we're going. Uh, has day forgotten when the Palm Sunday comes before Easter? Are there things that are going, and, and no, this has been part of what we've been doing. So I've been spending a lot of time this text really for the last about six weeks now, but really only in the last 10 days or so have sat back and said, okay, what does it look like to think about this text after Easter? What we have today is the traditional Palm Sunday text in Luke 19, 28 to 48, where we're looking at Jesus' entry into the city on the foal of, of a donkey and, and them laying out their coats before him as he comes in and their proclamation of him as king. And we usually just see this text solely through the vision of what was it like leading up to the cross. And typically we're just wrestling with the fact that how could they proclaim him as Jesus and then turn around and crucify him such a short time later. And we're usually very focused on them and the way that this happened in their lives and how could they see him in these two very different ways. And today our challenge is to step on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and to step back into this passage and say, how do I see it now? Not as a lead up to the cross, but how does it help me to see the cross on the other side? And I think maybe, how do I see me more than them? Because I think in that Palm Sunday position where we're leading in, we're primarily trying to relive their experience of how did they turn on Jesus in that way? How did they go from seeing him as king to someone to be crucified? And it's very easy to distance them from us. It's kind of like the way we read the disciples, right? I love Peter because I figure if Peter can be in the Bible, I'm okay. Because I put my foot in my mouth sometimes, but not like this guy. Right? And so we love them. We love Israel because we know Israel's going to fail. We know they're going to mess up so they can be like them and we can be like those great New Testament believers who conquer. Right? And we kind of separate them from us. So they're, they're good for us to look at, but they're for, good for us to look at because we won't be like them. So I think today, let's just take a little opportunity to step back and look at this passage and say, you know what, in what ways am I like them, and how do I see this now, and how does it fit in my context here, not just as a precursor to what's coming on Easter Sunday. And so a little bit of a challenge and a little bit of a disorientation for us. We're going to have to kind of step outside the box here a little bit as we consider this passage. So we are in Luke chapter 19. We're going to pick up in 28 and go to the end of the chapter uh, 48. And this is just after the parable 
uh, about the, the, the ruler who goes away and comes back, and then he works through the different servants. This idea of, of are you attentive to the master's business while he is away. This comes immediately after that. So we pick that up in verse uh, 28. And when he had said these things, so this parable, when he's finished with this parable, then he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying this colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. So they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen. They were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in its highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Father, we ask that today as we consider this portion of your word, this section of Jesus' entry into the city, that you might open our hearts and our eyes, that we might see your word clearly, that we might understand what your son said, and that we might take it to heart, that we might not miss the time of your visitation, but that we might understand, Lord, what it means to make peace. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So what's going on here? We know this, this passage is pretty familiar, right? So this is one that, that folks are used to. Most everyone realizes that this is kind of a reenactment of something that's mentioned in the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9. It talks about the Messiah, the king coming and being seated on the foal of a donkey. So on, on a young, kind of a young colt of a donkey, not of a horse, primarily because horses associated with kings have to do with the victorious warrior. So a king comes in on a horse, king comes in riding in in victory and power with the might of his military with him. But there's a large role for kings on donkeys in the ancient Near East as well. And this is primarily a symbol of peace alongside a symbol that this is the beginning of their reign. If you want to see this, you could look back when, when David is at the end of his life, at the beginning of 1 Kings, and is concerned that Solomon would be the one to take the throne as the other brothers are jockeying for position. One of his instructions is to seat Solomon and ride him on a donkey. 
You see this as David takes over from Saul, that as some of Saul's kin want to try and take the kingship, they begin putting people on donkeys and riding them so that people would perceive them as beginning their reign. So that this entry into the capital city on a donkey is an entry, but it's an entry of a king coming in peace, not in war coming to conquer. And it's a king who is beginning his reign. Now, all of this also has a lot to do with a passage in Zechariah 14 that talks about the Messiah showing up at Mount Olivet. And when he arrives there, he's going to drive out those who have oppressed his people. He's going to claim the victory for them, and then he's going to take care of them and set them in security. Luke knows this as he writes, but that's not what happens here. And it's totally against the grain. The first thing that a king does as he rides in and after he's been proclaimed king is he demonstrates the legitimacy as God would typically provide some sort of a test where they would then go into battle and win under God's watch and his empowering. So Saul has a couple instances up front where he fights and he gains victory. David steps into the scene after he's been anointed. What do we see? He defeats Goliath. There's always this sort of test and conquering And Jesus is going to step into the city to be conquered and killed. This is not your typical kingship. And it's not the way a king is normally validated. But if you don't accept Jesus as king in his death and in his resurrection, then you can't know Jesus as king when he comes to conquer and rule and reign in power. That's what Luke is setting up for us here and what the people are wrestling with that they sort of don't get. So let's walk through some of the parts and pieces here as he goes in. He knows where this donkey will be, and he tells his disciples to go and get it. It's a donkey that's never been ridden on, which means it's, it's valid for use in a ceremonial setting. It's ritually pure, and so they bring it forward. And they seat him on as a king, and they bring him in, and they begin to proclaim. And notice what they proclaim of him here. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, most of us, when we hear that glory in the highest, there are little echoes and rings here. The things that were said when Christ was born, right? That there's peace, there's goodwill among those who have God's favor. That glory in the highest is shouted by the angels as he is born. And there's a strong connection here to a passage that we did back at Christmas time, just before Christmas in Zechariah 1. And this is going to be what Zechariah says, sorry, in, in Luke 1, what Zechariah says. Listen to his, to his words here at the very end, starting around, um, around verse 70 in chapter 1. And Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited. Remember, Christ is going to talk about in our passage today. They don't know the time of their visitation. He has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us. He's talking about the coming of the Messiah here in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all those who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And now we have a series of people who are preparing the Lord's entry into the city, just as John prepared Jesus' way into ministry, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and their forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and then in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And Jesus says, you didn't know the day of your visitation. You don't know what it takes to make peace. See, they've assumed all along the way, there is this grand story that's going on, that ultimately God needs to defeat those who are set against his people. And he will do that both at the cosmic level, it began at the cross and it finishes at the end of time, but he also will do it locally for Israel as he comes in and he defends and rescues them. So everyone has assumed along the way in Israel that the problem is outside and not inside. The problem is that there are people who oppose us. The problem is that there are those who are gathered against us. The problem is that we are under attack. If you go back and you read the Old Testament, Israel's attacked because they've been in disobedience and God has withdrawn his hand. They've been rebellious, they've rejected, they've refused him, and God has sent enemies to discipline them. They read a little earlier in Zechariah 14 that talks about exactly that. This is why you're sitting in exile. This is why this has happened to you, because you've run away from your God. And it's only when that time of discipline comes to a close that then God steps in to defend his people. Who were Adam and Eve attacked by? Right? Satan comes in, the form of the serpent, and it's out of the desires of their own heart that they step in and they say, that looks good. I think I'll eat from that. The assumption that the problem is outside leads them to then look for a king who will deal with what's outside. So most of the people around him, and this is why the Pharisees are saying, tell your disciples to be silent. Because if he's the Messiah as they think of Messiah, he's coming in to conquer the Romans. And they're like, we're not sure that you're the guy to do that. So you better be quiet because they're going to think this is a rebellion. And ultimately, he will be crucified under that sign, king of the Jews. But his kingdom that he's establishing now is a kingdom of peace. He'll tell Peter, this doesn't go forward by the sword. That's not how this kingdom comes about. It comes about because we're going to make peace in Jerusalem through my death. So they say here, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So the king who comes represents Yahweh. He represents the Lord of Israel. And this becomes a major dividing line. This becomes a place where you recognize that if you don't take Jesus, you're rejecting the Lord. And if you take the Lord, you can't take him without taking Jesus. Because Jesus has come to represent the Father. And so their will is one. This is all that he's been teaching. Everything I do, everything I say, is what the Father has called me to do. And what he's called me to do in this moment is to come and for there to be peace in heaven and glory to be given. And these disciples get that. 
They're proclaiming that he has come in peace. They're proclaiming that he's come to prepare the glory of God to be shown to his people. So they cry this out. And if they won't, then the very stones would cry out. So in this moment, the disciples preparing the way for him into the city, he looks at the city and he weeps. And he weeps over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What makes for peace? It's not the absence of war. What makes for peace? It's not the conquering of your enemies. What makes for peace? And the great irony here is that Jerusalem has peace in its name, right? That, that Salem is, is Shalom. It's that part of the peacemaking. That's a part of its city. That This is where God will make peace. It's where he makes peace every year at the Day of Atonement because the temple is there and he put his name on that place. He said, if you come here, you come in faith, you do as I've told you to do, then we are at peace with one another and your sins are forgiven. But Israel's looking around them and says, no, we'll have peace when the Romans are gone. No, we'll have peace when we rule our own country. No, we'll have peace when our enemies are gone. So Jesus, make them go away. And Jesus weeps for them. Because as long as that's their orientation, as long as that's what they're looking for, he says, and the way of peace is hidden from you. Days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground. You're talking to the city. You and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, the time of visitation in the Old Testament is all those great moments when God steps in directly and he rescues his people and he rushes in to save them. But it also refers to that time when if he rushes in and they reject his salvation, it's the time that he rushes in and he brings judgment. Actually say in the book of Amos, don't be excited about the day of the Lord. You say you want the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord will be like uh, escaping a bear and being eaten by a lion about being kind of tired and leaning up against your house and being bitten by a snake. You think it brings salvation, but you're not right with me. It will bring your judgment. Don't rush in and beg for what you're not ready for. And this is why Jesus weeps, because the city doesn't know that when he brings salvation, if they reject it, the city's bringing their own condemnation. And they don't get that. Now, I spent a lot of time this kind of week trying to think about what this looks like for us in our own lives, in our own setting. And, and I have to admit, it's, it's hard. But there's some places I think we really have to consider, especially for those of This would be different if we were talking in a different culture, in a different place. But we have a lot of struggles right now where we look externally and we say the church will be fine and I'll be fine when God deals with. And you can fill in the blank here when there is a certain kind of president in the White House, when there's a certain kind of jurist on the Supreme Court, when there's a certain kind of law in place in our state, when there's a certain kind of ethos that's back in our country. And those are all out there things. And Jesus says, no, the way to make peace is that I die for your sins. And then... All of it will be well. See, we're going to transition here. Up until now, Israel has been a kingdom like all the other kingdoms with an army and a king and a visible, a visible physical presence on the earth. 
But as Jesus begins to inaugurate his kingdom, it's not of this world. He's king in heaven, and we're here not as citizens of that kingdom on a physical location, but as ambassadors living here as strangers and aliens in this world, saying, you need to meet my king. And let me tell you about what it's like to be a citizen living under his rule and his reign. We're not reestablishing a physical kingdom now, not until he returns. And so life is different and the problems are not outside. Now, this doesn't mean the problems aren't real, right? The New Testament is clear. If I suffered, you're going to suffer. Jesus will tell his disciples, if I was persecuted, you will be persecuted. But the solution is not the removal of the persecutors. The solution is to be found safe in the kingdom. And safe in the kingdom is being at peace with God. And peace with God is taking the cross and saying, this is for me, not because of those who are persecuting me, but because I have persecuted you, and I deserve to die on that cross. It's too easy for us to slip back out and say, once again, we've dealt with the cross, right? So good, I remember that. Now I'm going to deal with all this other stuff. That's exactly what Israel did. We're the people of God. We're good. Now we're moving on. And now it's all external to us. We have the temple. We do our sacrifices. Now we're all good. Moving on to things outside of us. This is what the church is constantly going to be struggling with. So he says here, you don't know what makes for peace, and you did not know the time of your visitation. And so for us, I think as we take this passage and we look backwards to the cross, do we leave the cross at Easter? And then we live the rest of the year as though this is not about my being made at peace with God. In some ways, the gospel is the foundation on which everything is built. And so we do build other things on it. But in other ways, the the gospel is in every layer that's built, right? It, It is the thing. We never get beyond it. It is the foundation, but it is also the life and blood of all that we do. And so he brings us back here to this place and says, this is what it looks like. So let's flesh this out a little bit more here. Look at this next section. He entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, what's going on here in this passage is not solely about money being exchanged at the temple. In the Old Testament, it was completely legitimate. You live far away from Jerusalem. Why, why bring, bring your herds, haul your grain? Do all, No, 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 don't do that. You just bring money. There will people be available in the temple complex, and you buy what it is you want to sacrifice. You want to sacrifice a bull? That's what you buy. You want to sacrifice a sheep? That's what you buy. And so you come and you do this. So there's nothing illegitimate about people coming and buying things to sacrifice there. That was prescribed in the law. And God says, buy what makes you pleased. Come and celebrate with me the goodness of our relationship. The problem is that over the years, they set up shop inside the temple complex instead of outside of it. And what they had done is they had taken up the only place that if you're a Gentile, not a Jew, where you were allowed to come in and worship is in this very place where they're doing all these sales. So if you are wanting to be, remember uh, when Solomon prays to dedicate the temple, he specifically asked God, if a foreigner comes, 
and comes to this temple that we just built, and he comes and implores you, and God answers prayer that the people might know how great and how glorious you are. And Israel's taken all that space and crowded them outside the temple to do their business. You don't know what it takes to make peace. Because if you crowd everyone out who might want to come and call on God's name, and that's where you're doing your business, then what you're saying is, this is all about us. It has nothing to do with you. This is a closed community, and you're not welcome. This is a place where you don't belong. Because God is only about us and our people. They don't understand what it takes to make peace, right? The covenant given to Abraham is that all the nations would be blessed through this covenant, through the king who would come, through the law that would be given. All this is about reaching the nations through one nation, not about reaching one nation. You don't understand, so he drives them out. And it's a symbol that your judgment is coming. Because if you don't see what I've done for you, O nation of Israel, as being for those you've kept out, you don't understand who I am as Lord. We can be like that. Right? Churches are not always welcoming places. We've moved a lot in our time, so we've visited a lot of churches over the years. Um, it's actually one of our most hated things. Uh, I, you all have been lovely, but I hate visiting new churches. Right? Most of you have had this kind of similar experiences. You walk in, and there's an expectation that you know how to behave here, or you don't belong. There's an expectation that these things that we have memorized and we say to one another, you should know, or you're just kind of far from God, maybe. Your tradition isn't really up to speed. You walk in, and your dress is apparent that you don't belong. You walk in, and maybe your accent or your skin tone doesn't belong. I grew up in a place in the mountains of North Carolina um, where the whole kind of place was sort of like this. Um, we drove in this little place, moved there when I was about six, about 2,000 people, one stoplight, not a chain restaurant in sight. Uh, for 20 years, literally, these are the thick pins. They moved here. Sometimes we're kind of like that. You're new here, aren't you? Now, this is not about changing who we are to say that we're all things to all people in terms of come and we're some nondescript place that, oh, it can be about God, it cannot be about God, make it whatever you want. But there's a subtle thing that happens when we're about a family that's already established. And if you're lucky, you might get to be taken into the family. You're like that little orphan that has to beg to be adopted. Instead of finding a family that says, we are a family that knows that we were adopted. And God reached out to make peace with us. So we want to make peace with you and have you be at peace with God 
So come in and be with us. Because God has already called us in. So while yes, in this moment, this is about Israel and about what's happening and the signs that are going to come leading up to the cross, but looking backwards, we can build our churches a lot like they built the temple and fill the court in such a way that people who don't know Christ, don't come from the right background, can be just as unwelcome here as they were in the temple in Jesus' day. If we do that, we don't understand what it means to be at peace with God. So in our own lives, how does that look? With a neighbor who is problematic. With a coworker who you really hope gets the job they're applying for at another company very far away. With a family member that you're thrilled lives a plane ride away. Blessed is he who comes in the name, in the authority, the power, the character, and the reputation of the Lord. Who reached out to Adam and Eve in the midst of their sin and said, are you hiding? Let me clothe you. Who reached out to Abraham's family who were worshipers of the moon God and said, come to a land I will show you. When Israel was fat and happy in Egypt, he said, you don't belong here. I'm going to take you out with a powerful hand. When Israel rejected him in the desert, I'm still taking you to the promised land. When king after king after king failed, I will send you a new king who will not fail. When Jesus is rejected, he still keeps his face set towards Jerusalem to go to the cross, not because they accepted him, but because they needed him to make peace. And it was the decision of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that he would go and make a way for them to have peace. If I understand that, it changes the way I think about that neighbor, that coworker, that family member there's a way for them to be at peace as well with God and with us. And we serve as that ambassador just as God reached out every time to his people and said, let me make you a way of peace. Let me make space in my life that there's room for you to come in. That I haven't filled the only space where you can enter and have someone share the love of God with you let me make space in my life for that. This is the nature of what's taking place at the temple. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. There's a slight ratcheting up of what's taking place in this. The Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests... They've been after him since the beginning. As soon as he starts teaching, as soon as he rejects their authority for the authority of God's word, then they reject him and they are out to get him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to go after him. But notice now, it is also the principal men of the people. 
the powerful, the elite, those who lead and define what it is to be called Israel, they too have now decided that Jesus has to go. And in a short amount of time, some, I don't think all, I think sometimes we overplay that when we talk about the transition from Palm Sunday to Jesus' crucifixion. Clearly not all those who are laying out palm branches and laying out their coats and proclaiming him Jesus and the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, not all of them are turning to crucify him. But some of them are. And some of them do that because he didn't conquer the Romans. And some of them do that because powerful men said he has to go. And so they cast their lot with the powerful instead of with the one who looks like he's about to be defeated. In our moment, in this time, particularly in this country, there's a wrestling for power in society that we at all costs must win and we're unwilling to proclaim that power comes in this moment and this time as God has designed it through weakness. His salvation comes through weakness, not through strength. So will we use the levers of power to accomplish what can only be done through the making of peace, through the weakness and foolishness of the cross? Or will some of us be tempted to join with the powerful and the elite and say at all costs, we have to stay together? Because this is the only way to get what we want. It's a hard moment. But it comes back to something that is as true as it was in the garden as it is now. There are only two paths. It really is just two ways. Either he is in the name of the Lord and we follow him. Or we follow our own path. There is no other way. And at this moment, the people are choosing... And they're lining up on their sides and determining, do I follow Jesus or do I follow the powerful? Those who follow the powerful will stand and cry, give us Barabbas and crucify him. We saw the miracles, we heard the teaching, but he's not doing it our way, so he has to go. And some will say, haltingly, in fits and starts with failures like Peter, You are the Christ. I don't know him. And Jesus will come back and say, Peter, feed my sheep. Because you and I are at peace. And I've atoned even for what you've just done. And I love you. So serve me and serve my people. This is the call that's given to us even here in this text leading up to his crucifixion. It's too easy to take a passage like this and have it be about them instead of about me. Because there are times when I'm silent and I don't proclaim him as the one who is blessed and coming in the name of the Lord. There are times when I have taken all the space out of my life for the people who are just easier to not be dealt with. And I've, in essence, put things in that court of the Gentiles so that no one can get to me and I don't have space to engage with them because I'm already in. 
And I can make space for you because you're already in. I don't have to worry about what's going on. We just left that parable about being about the king's business while he's away. Do I have the same mindset that he does? And there are times and places when I'm tempted to follow those who have power and to use the levers of power instead of a position of prayer, to use the wisdom of this world instead of the wisdom of our God, when I am tempted to pursue things through ungodly means because God's way is fill-in-the-blank, too slow, maybe not effective for what I want, maybe it's leading in another direction, maybe it's just frustrating because I don't know where it's going to end up tomorrow. So that's the temptation. I know where it's ending up in eternity. I don't know where it's going to end tomorrow. There's only two paths. If I trust him for eternity, I have to trust him for tomorrow. I take control of tomorrow, then I take control of eternity too. He either comes in the name of the Lord, and I say he's blessed, or I reject him and say he has to go. Those are the only two options that we have. And this is not just a lead up to the crucifixion. This is daily for us. Not that I'm wrestling and father have I lost my salvation, but no, but, but I choose. Will I follow him or not? Will I engage those in this world around me and say, there's a way for peace to be made? And I'll end with this. We'll, we'll close here. I think that there's a need for us in this moment, perhaps more than anything else, to be at peace. Not that things will be easy, not that the difficulties will go, but I think what's craved for most in the world right now is any sense of peace. But how many peace treaties have we signed? How many accords have been written? How many ceasefires have been made only to be ripped apart? I'm going to have peace. It's got to be despite my circumstances because I don't see those changing tomorrow. It's got a peace, as the old song says, that, that surpasses, right? Understanding a peace that is given because it's not based in me. It's not based in my relationship with you. It's based in the one who comes as the king of peace. And has made that peace on the cross so that fundamentally I can be right with God and have peace with him. The rest of it will be sorted out in time and space and in history. But if I can be settled with him, then I have hope of being at peace with you. And of sharing that peace with someone else. And slowly a foothold of his kingdom begins to take place. And you have one of those safe spaces, right? We think of them as embassies. The place I run to in another country when I need the safety of my own. And that's what we are called to be. A place of safety and peace where people from another kingdom can run here and say, I desperately need what you have. Take me in and keep me safe. And we have space understanding that this is the day that God is visiting them, and we say, yes, come. 
And let me tell you how to be at peace. Not the peace the world gives, but the peace that was won on the cross and demonstrated in the resurrection. That's the peace this king comes to declare. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we consider these things and we continue to press on in the world that you've called us to serve, that you would help us to understand truly the way of peace and what it means, Lord, to serve your Son who comes in your name. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.